Judgments. It's an interesting title, isn't it? Yes, it is. Uh, Psalm 9, uh, it begins at uh, the top of the, the psalm, the superscription over the top of the, the psalm, uh, says, To the chief musician, to the tune of Death of the Son, a psalm of David. Now, it's an interesting title, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Now, it's interesting. Uh, David uh, here again says, To the chief musician. We often find David saying that at the top of, of a psalm, which would in, indicate that he intended for this to be sung, right? We think about the, the psalms being the songbook of God's people uh, for that reason. David loved to praise and to communicate the Lord in song. He wrote it down. We call them psalms. Uh, now, we don't know what death of the sun refers to. Many of the commentaries think it it refers to probably a well-known tune in, in David's day that they knew what he was talking about, but we don't, right? Now, uh, Psalm 9 and 10 may have originally been one psalm. I mean, the Septuagint has them combined into one, but there's good reasons to think they actually should be two psalms as we have them here in our Bibles as Psalm 9 and 10. Psalm 9 looks forward to God's triumph over his enemies, which David also considers to be his enemies. Uh, some think in the background you might have David's uh, victory over Goliath, echoes of that perhaps, which then expands out to a call for God to triumph over all the wicked in all the nations of the world. It certainly does expand out to, to that point. Uh, but again, we don't know the exact uh, background here, as is often the case. Uh, you note uh, the outline. The theme is praise God for his judgments. And then uh, the outline, praise God for dealing with the enemy. Verses 1 through 6, praise God for his righteous judgment. 7 and 8, praise God for being a refuge for the oppressed. 9 and 10, praise God he remembers his people. 11 and 12, a plea for mercy. 13 and 14, the destiny of the wicked in contrast to God's people. 15 through 18, and finally, appeal for God to humble the nations. Let's get into it. Verse 1. I will praise you, O Lord, with my whole heart. I will tell of all your marvelous works. I will be glad and rejoice in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. We have four I wills in these first two verses. Uh, four I wills of intensive praise. Notice uh, David says, uh, with his whole heart. I will praise you with my whole heart. His whole heart is involved here in this praise. You know, something with your whole heart. I mean, you're, you're into it intensively. Uh, Spurgeon said, half heart is not heart, right? <laughs> yeah, you kind of do it half-hearted. Is your heart really in it? They sometimes say, well, your heart's not really in it. David's heart was really in this. And his expressed desire was to praise the Lord with his whole heart. Now, this truly is worship in spirit and in truth. It's heart worship, which is what we should do as we worship the Lord. His praise involves telling of God's marvelous works. Simply recounting what great things God has done is a wonderful way to praise Him. And we've heard some of that tonight in our, in our sharing time, right? We see the wonderful works of God. Uh, you know, all kinds of things, whether it's answer to prayer, as far as, you know, bringing somebody back when it looks like they're on the brink of death, uh, whether it's, uh, you know, how God works through a coat drive. All kinds of things we see God at work doing. And simply recounting the great things that God has done is a wonderful way to praise Him. It really is. 
As the living God, he is at work in our lives on a continual basis. I think about that, the living God. And living means he's moving. He's, he's interacting with us. We, we are in fellowship with him. Uh, we are in step with him. Our whole life is intertwined, intertwined interacting with, with God day in and day out. And his workings are obvious for those who have eyes to see. As we pray, we see him move. Constantly we see this. Say, well, just another lucky happening. No, no, not, not at all. Uh, answer to prayer. And yet it is amazing how often, you know, people that claim to be God's people kind of sit around. Instead of talking about uh, God and his workings in our, in our lives, we sometimes seem to talk about everything else except God and the great things that he is doing and has done. Uh, you know, how about starting the conversation this way? What great things have you... Uh, seen God do lately? <laughs> That'd be an interesting way to start a conversation, wouldn't it? Uh, 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 uh. <laughs> you know, many professing Christians, and I doubt very much on a Sunday night whether this includes most of you, but there are many professing Christians who hardly ever pray. And no wonder they don't seem to see God at work as you see God works through prayer. That's how, that's how he works. I mean, he works in a lot of different ways, and he doesn't need our prayer, but, but he works through prayer. We, we see this all over the place in the Scriptures. No wonder Paul said, pray without ceasing. Want to see God work? Pray. And it's no wonder if people don't pray that they have little to talk about when they start talking about, you know, what's, been God doing? what's God been doing uh, here? Have you seen anything in terms of the handiwork of God uh, lately? Uh, what a shame if we don't pray, we, therefore we, we're missing out. Well, accompanying David's praise uh, and talking about uh, God's uh, workings, um, there was great joy in his heart. Note he's rejoicing in the Lord. Uh, we can always find joy in the Lord, not necessarily in our circumstances, but in, in our Lord. And it should cause us to sing his praises. And we do. We have a singing faith. And then David ends his uh, four I wills of praise in addressing God as the most high. Uh, this emphasizes God's sovereignty overall. He is in control. He is the one responsible for all the wonderful works about which David is, is full of praise and overjoyed. Notice verse 3. When my enemies turn back, they shall fall and perish at your presence. Now David doesn't name these enemies, but he is sure that they're going down before the presence of his God. Verse 4, For you have maintained my right cause. You sat on the throne judging in righteousness. Boy, David takes this very personal, what God is doing in reference to uh, his enemies, his personal enemies, and uh, his cause, which he calls a right cause. You have maintained my right and my cause. Now again, we don't know the specific occasion but David believed that God had intervened on his behalf because of his righteous cause. So David views God as sitting on his throne and judging righteously, if you will, in his favor. Uh, David Gazik has a comment here at this point. This shows us that the God of David, that is the God of the Bible, is not dispassionate regarding right and wrong among men. He is not always neutral in human conflict. David didn't see God as being neutral. He saw God as intervening on his behalf because his cause was right. Now, we do want to be careful with this, right? 
because people are often quick to claim, well, God's on our side, when in fact, maybe not. Nevertheless, there are times when the situation is a matter of what is clearly right and wrong. That was the situation here for David. And he saw God clearly intervene for him and defend him in his right cause. That's how David saw it. Verse 5, You have rebuked the nations. You have destroyed the wicked. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. O enemy, destructions are finished forever. And you have destroyed cities. Even their memory has perished. Now, the past tenses here in verses 5 through 8 are what scholars often refer to as prophetic perfects. This is a common feature in the Old Testament in which something yet future is so certain to come to pass that it is spoken of as as having already happened. That's the idea. The future of Israel is certain. Hamas, not so much. But the future of Israel is certain. Uh, I mean, has to be. I mean, if the future of Israel is not certain, you, you can do away with this book. Uh, but it is certain. But the wicked of the nations ultimately have their very names blotted out. I like this quote from David Jeremiah. You cannot find the ancient neighbors of the Jews anywhere. Have you ever met a Moabite? Hands. (laughs) Do you know any Hittites? Are there tours to visit the Ammonites? Can you find the postal code of a single Edomite? No, these ancient peoples disappeared from history and from the face of the earth. Yet the Jews, just as God promised, returned to their land. Amazing! By the way, that's unique in the annals of history. Somebody out of their land for 2,000 years returns as a people to their land. Sounds like a God thing to me. How about you? Verse 7. But the Lord shall endure forever. Oh, the nations, the wicked nations, they're going down. Their memory is going by the wayside. But the Lord shall endure forever. He has prepared his throne for judgment. You know what? The Lord isn't going anywhere. And therefore, his people aren't going anywhere. The fate of the Lord and his people are one. In contrast to to the wicked of the nations... The Lord, that is Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel, shall endure forever. He forever sits on his throne, which is here pictured as a throne of judgment. From his throne, God exacts judgment on the nations. You know, the world has no idea. And when I mean no idea, they're completely oblivious to the fact that judgment is headed their way. But the Bible is full of prophecy that says in one accord that the world is headed for judgment. God, it says here, has prepared his throne for judgment. Verse 8, he shall judge the world in righteousness. He shall administer judgment for the peoples in uprightness. It's coming. And when God judges the world, it will be in righteousness. You know, the world screams for justice, right? But they don't really want God's righteous judgment. They want it according to their own sinful biases and their own twisting of things. 
Uh, it is why the world, by the way, more and more hates the Judeo-Christian ethic that our country was founded on. I mean, there's huge amounts of people who just hate the, hate the country for what it was founded on, what it stands for. Really, it's founded on Judeo-Christian principles, imperfect as it was, which is true always. But God's standard of right is what he will judge by. And note the double emphasis on in righteousness and in uprightness. God will judge the world by his holy and right standards. Well, they're going to get justice, all right, but not the kind that they want. By the way, Paul quoted Psalm 9-8 here in his address in Athens, as seen in Acts 17, where he applied it to God's coming judgment of the world through Jesus. Uh, here in Acts 17, 30, 31, verse 31 is really where the quote is. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. Why? Because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. There's the phrase that we believe is borrowed from Psalm 9, 8. He's appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained, he has given assurance of this all by, by raising him from the dead. Of course, that's the Lord Jesus Christ. Just as sure as the resurrection happened, just as sure as just as sure the world is on a collision course with God's righteous judgment. And the only way to re- prepare for it is to repent, which God now commands all people everywhere to do. G. Campbell Morgan says, The psalm is a great pattern of praise on a far too much neglected level in our day. We praise God much for his, his mercy. That is right. But it's a good thing to recognize his righteous rule and to praise him for that as well. Indeed. Verse 9. The Lord also will be a refuge for the oppressed, a refuge in times of trouble. And those who know your name will put their trust in you. For you, Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. What a wonderful truth. The Lord is a refuge in time of trouble. Did you catch that at the end of verse 9? A refuge in times of trouble. I mean, when you have nowhere else else to go, you can go to the Lord. He's there. He cares. Casting all your care upon Him. He cares for you. 1 Peter 5, 7. But note the qualifier in verse 10. Not everyone can claim the refuge promise of verse 9. God's special protection and care belongs to those who know His name. And who are they? Well, they are those who trust in Him, as it says. Those who characteristically seek the Lord. Verse 11. Sing praises to the Lord who dwells in Zion. Declare His deeds among the people. When He avenges blood, He remembers them. He does not forget the cry of the humble. Suddenly, another outburst of praise in song to to God's, uh, really calling for God's people now to do it. Uh, Earlier, David was praising the Lord himself, and now he's he's calling on uh, the whole congregation, as it were, uh, to sing his praises and declare his deeds. Uh, Zion is referencing the the Temple Mount. It's kind of the old word that's sometimes used in reference to just the Temple Mount, sometimes the whole of Jerusalem. Uh, David here, in verse 1, as we noted, said, I, I will tell of all your marvelous works, but here he calls on others to declare God's deeds among the people. And the kinds of deeds that he seems to have in mind at this point, in this context, 
as I read for you, are deeds of God's vengeance. Sing praises to the Lord, His deeds among the people. When He avenges blood, He remembers them. He does not forget the cry of the humble. Suddenly, uh, we have this emphasis on God avenging and remembering. The Bible tells us not to get even. We are not to be people of vengeance. That's not our place. We do pray for the wicked oppressor, that they would repent and know the grace of God. But there's also a place to praise God for his righteous vengeance. You know, that's what all of heaven is doing, is you have the the conclusion of the tribulation period just before the second coming of Christ. They are rejoicing on the judgment that God has brought down on, on Babylon the Great. The whole of heaven gets totally excited over this. In view here is the avenging of the murder of God's people. It's good to know that God doesn't forget. So many of God's people are quietly killed off and the world just goes on. This is happening in all kinds of places in the world. Uh, It is incredible some of the things you read about. I get the voice of the martyrs and you read about what these people are going through. It's just incredible. And who knows? I mean, it's never in the media. It's not an issue with the world. No one seems to notice much or care, but God does. He avenges blood. Did you catch that? Verse 12, he avenges blood. He remembers those who are murderously killed. He does not forget the cry of the humble. The humble are those who are, you know, beaten down and and they're in a position of disadvantage. They don't have any strength to fight back. When Cain killed his godly brother Abel, God then confronted Cain. It's interesting what he said, right? I mean, Genesis 4.10. He said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now, Cain may have thought that he had gotten away with it. But no, God had not forgotten Abel's blood figuratively cried out to God for vengeance. People may think they get away with murder, do away with these people, and they'll be gone. We'll move on. No, it doesn't work that way. You know, the Bible is very clear talking about murders. Praise the Lord, murders can be saved, you know. Uh, You think about, uh, you know, some of the great, you know, David was a murderer, right? Saul was a murderer. Uh, you have a lot of these kind of situations, people that God saved. But notice in Revelation 21, verse 8, but the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable murderers, that's, that's the category I'm looking for, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. And then again, Revelation 22, 15, outside, and he's talking in context, outside the holy city, uh, the, home, the eternal home of the saints, Outside are dogs, uh, you know, spiritually speaking, unclean, and sorcerers, sexually immoral, and murders, and idolaters, and whoever loves and practices a lie. In terms of vengeance, the uh, Bible's very clear, Deuteronomy 32, 35, vengeance is mine and recompense. I mean, it's, it's God's prerogative to pay back. Their foot shall slip in due time, for the day of their calamity is at hand, and the things to come hasten upon them. God says, vengeance is mine. 
And then in the New Testament, in Romans 12, 19, Beloved, do not avenge yourselves. It's not your place. Rather, give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. That's God's place. We leave, we leave that with God. Verse 13, Have mercy on me, O Lord. Consider my trouble from those who hate me. So we, you know, God has worked. God has intervened, but there's a present concern. You who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may tell all your praise in the gates of the daughter of Zion, I will rejoice in your salvation. David knew that God was sovereign. He knew that victory ultimately belongs to the Lord. And yet he was no fatalist. He also knew that God works through prayer. And right now he was again in need of God's intervention. Once again he asked God to deliver him from the gates of death. I mean, it seems like it's a pretty perilous type situation. There's <laughs> a, like a life-threatening situation. But he asks not merely for selfish reasons. He asks to the end that he may tell of God's praise in Zion, in the worship center of Jerusalem. David prayed for God to rescue him to the end that he might give God all the more praise. Now, that's God-centered praying. The final goal should always be God's greater glory. And then in faith, he says, I will rejoice in your salvation. Comes back to that note of confidence. He was confident, and yet he prayed. That is a biblical construct. Verse 15, The nations have sunk down in the pit which they made, in the net which they laid. Their own foot is caught. The Lord is known by the judgment he executes. This is what God is famous for. He is known... Uh, by the judgment he executes. The wicked is snared in the work of his own hands. Meditation. Selah. Stop and think about this. William MacDonald says, here in verse 15, he leaps forward once more to the time when the anti-Semitic nations will fall into the pit which they have dug for the Jews and be trampled in the net which they intended for God's ancient people. You know, God has a way of bringing the wickedness of the wicked back on their own head. They make a pit only to fall into it. They make the net only to be caught in it. This too shows the greatness of God to be able to make this happen. The Lord is known by these kinds of judgments. Think about it. Esau and Isaac plotted against God's purpose only to have it end up furthering God's purposes. Joseph's brothers meant it for evil. And Joseph tells them, you meant it for evil. But God turned it around. God meant it for good. Haman built the gallows for Mordecai the Jew only to be hung on it himself. Judas betrayed Jesus, but in so doing fulfilled prophecy, and God used it to bring about the salvation of mankind. What does he say? The Lord is known by the judgment he executes. God is so great and so sovereign that in judging the wicked, he is glorified in it by reversing the entire situation for his glory and for the good of his people. Meditation, sila, evidently, again, denoting a pause 
with the idea we should stop and reflect on this awesome truth. God is able to turn the tables on the wicked. It's a God thing. And then comes the end of the matter, as seen in verse 17. The wicked shall be turned into hell, and all the nations that forget God. Here is the final destiny of the wicked. They're headed for hell. And what is descriptive of the wicked is that they forget God. Now, God has all kinds of reminders. The heavens declare the glory of God. Uh, there's a God-given consciousness. They're without excuse. Romans 1. God has all kinds of reminders about himself through his people, providentially, etc. But the wicked pay no mind. They don't want anything to do with God. And it shows in the oppression of, of his people. Charles Spurgeon, the forgetters of God are far more numerous than the profane and according to the very forceful expression of the Hebrew, the nethermost hell will be the place into which all of them shall be hurled headlong. Forgetfulness seems a small sin, but it brings eternal wrath upon the man who lives and dies in it. In contrast, verse 18, for the needy shall not always be forgotten. The expectation of the poor shall not perish forever. God's going to turn the tables someday. What a beautiful contrast we have between the wicked who shall be turned into hell in verse 17 and the fact that God's people, described here as needy and poor, shall not always be forgotten. Now, it sometimes, it sometimes seems like they might be. But that's not the end of the story. The end of the story is not yet realized. The expectation or hope of the poor shall not perish forever. It shall yet be realized. Again, the needy and the poor are those who trust in the Lord, as seen in verse 10. Uh, the idea of needy and poor often is David's way of describing God's people who are vulnerable, oppressed, and taken advantage of in the world. But they have a future hope. This world is not the end of the story. It's always good to be reminded of that. There's more to come. I love that line, they will not be forgotten. God has not forgotten them. David Gazik says, there are few more painful things than feeling forgotten and feeling disappointed. To those in such pain, God makes these wonderful promises. They shall not always be forgotten, and their expectation will not perish. Adam Clark says, The needy and the poor, whose expectation is from the Lord, are never forgotten. Though sometimes their deliverance is delayed for the greater confusion of their enemies, the greater manifestation of God's mercy, and the greater, and greater benefit to themselves. Verse 19, Arise, O Lord, do not let man prevail. Let the nations be judged in your sight. That's a big prayer. David has expressed confidence in God's judgment previously in the psalm, but still he prays. And his prayer is really reminiscent of Moses' cry in Numbers, Numbers 10, 35. Uh, so it was, whenever the ark set out, Moses said, Rise up, O Lord, let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. David, at this point, is thinking in very big terms, in terms of all the nations. He's asking God to bring down the rebel, wicked nations of the world. 
Now, during the times of the Gentiles, Israel has been the tail and not the head, so to speak. The times of the Gentiles have been a long, extended time of oppression for the Jews. This last week, I read through the the Dark Ages and and what the Jews have gone through uh, just in history. Really, oppression by people called Christians. If you deal with Jews, you have to realize there's a lot of history here, and the Jews know it. Those that have claimed to be Christians have been sometimes the worst persecutors of the Jews. Now, we would say, that's not the true church. And that's true. Although you got people like Luther. I mean, the last sermon he ever gave was just a diatribe against the Jews. I mean, Luther wrote some of the most horrible things about the Jews. People don't even, they can't even put it in print. I mean, he became the, just, uh, he just hated those Jews. Yeah, that's a major problem. There's other problems too, but... Um, Yeah, they have been trampled underfoot. Jesus said Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. But one day, that will come to an end. One day, David's prayer will be completely answered as the nations are judged by God. Notice what he said. Do not let man prevail. Don't, Don't let him just get away with this. The oppression of your people. Let the nations be judged. Judge them, O God. Arise! One day it will happen. Prophecy from Joel chapter 3. The Lord will roar from Zion. It will be a roar. Where's it coming from? Zion! And utter His voice from Jerusalem. The heavens and the earth will shake. Shaken. The heavens and the earth. But the Lord will be a shelter for his people. What people are we talking about? The strength of the children of Israel. So you shall know that I am the Lord your God, dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. Then Jerusalem shall be holy, and no aliens, no enemies of God's people, of God and his people, no aliens shall ever pass through her again. It will truly be the holy mountain. He will be dwelling in Zion. I mean, this is where Jesus is going to set up his his, uh, kingdom capital, as it were. Verse 20, put them in fear, O Lord. Put them in fear. Put your fear into them, the fear of God into them. That the nations may know themselves to be but men. Selah. The word for men in both 19 and 20 is the Hebrew word anash. E-N-O-S-H. It is a word that denotes frailty and weakness. Man thinks he's really all that, especially when he's in a position of oppression. But he's really not. And so he says, put them in fear that they may know themselves to be frail, but, but men, frail, weak men. In effect, David is asking God to humble the nations. Put them in fear. Put them in the fear of God that they might know their own puny weakness. You know, that's what God's going to do, by the way, in the day of the Lord's judgment. That's what he's going to do. I think the big issue in the world is the ego of mankind. Pride is the besetting sin of mankind. Strutting around with our egos. We read in Isaiah chapter 2, context of the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord of hosts shall come upon everything proud and lofty. 
upon everything lifted up, it shall be brought low. Verse 17, the loftiness of man shall be bowed down, and the haughtiness of men shall be brought low. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day. They're going down. He's going up. We read on later in that very chapter, Isaiah 2, 21, 22, to go into the clefts of the rocks and into the crags of the rugged rocks from the terror of the Lord and the glory of His majesty when He arises to shake the earth mightily. Sever yourselves from such a man whose breath is in his nostrils. For of what account is he? You know, mere air breathers should not get too cocky. They're only a breath away from death. Sever yourselves from, you know, this cockiness and and that arrogance that has the audacity to defy the living God as expressed in the oppression of his people. Warren Wearsby, one day the Lord will put the rebels in their rightful place and they will discover their true essence, dust. Yeah. G. Campbell Morgan, what prayer then can we pray which is of more vital importance than the nations may know themselves to be but men? Such knowledge must drive them to dependence upon God. He is the great, great God of the Bible. He's the great, great God of all power. He's the great God who can shake the world. He is the great God of the hour. And in the end, he will be the judge of all. But as we studied this morning, praise be to the living God who is the Savior of all those who in faith call upon him. Well, that brings us to the end of our study tonight, uh, Psalm 9. Uh, We'll get to Psalm 10 next time, Lord. Let's stand and have our, our closing song, and then I'll close this in prayer.